I've spoken to mum and I've told her what has happened today. And she said, she'll see you when you get home. And I was like, what? He didn't speak to anyone. And I looked at him and I thought, you liar. Black excellence means confidence, encouragement, respect, love, kindness, empowerment, authenticity, and perfection. Our guest this episode is the founder of Past the Baton Raise Next Generation, which focuses on putting purpose into the minds of the next generation. She uses her knowledge and experiences to help disadvantaged families through parity programs and children's books. It's now time to talk to Sandra. Sandra, thank you so much for joining us and spending, taking some time out of your day to talk to us. I know it's a busy day for you. Thank you. Hi, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's a blessed day today. Yes, the sun is truly shining, considering it's in the middle of, well, towards the end of October. But yeah, yeah the sun is shining and um, I have to say the temperature is kind of comfortable, so that's good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we know what's coming around the corner, though, so let's just enjoy right now. Absolutely. Don't remind us. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to jump in and ask you the first question. Are you ready? I'm ready. Lovely. So when did you first realise that being black was different? Right, okay. Um, When did I really first realise I was black? I'm going back to the 70s now. And um, as the first kind of descendants of the Windrush arrivals, my parents arrived here in the very, very early 60s. And um, it was really a tough time for them. And um, I remember my, my dad... He came here as a youngster and he was looking for work and um, he would walk up and down the streets of London, um, South London, because we were based in Brixton and he'd walk up and down the streets looking for a job and he'd go to all these different stores and factories looking for apply within, in the window, apply within, apply within. And as soon as dad got inside, he would hear the jobs taken, but the notice was still there. And if he had come back the next day, he'd still see the notice in the door, in the window, um, apply within, but he knew what he, they said to him the day before. And this went on for quite a while. And then um, he managed to get a job and um, he was being paid three pounds a week. And um, with that, he knew he had to be skilled so he decided to go to college at night and he um, decided to learn electronics. And so he'd go to work in the day and at night he'd go to college. And that's what life was like for us at that time. Mum, on the other hand, she, um, she came to the UK as a seamstress. So she used to sew in Jamaica and um, so she got a job in a bra factory sewing bras. So my aunt used to look after me and um, she was like my second mum, my mother's sister. And um, eventually 
because we lived at my aunt's house and eventually they managed to save just enough to get their own mortgage because they did something called a partner. Ah, and, that, yeah. and that was a savings plan that a lot of the Windrush arrivals had to create and do because they wouldn't get um, loans from the bank and um, it just wouldn't happen that way. And even for social housing, they kind of closed their doors to them to social housing. And so they had to really support each other. So once one got a property, they would sublet to, you know, a variety of different people so that they could manage to save. And that also initially helped to pay for the mortgage of that property that they were in as well. So everyone shared the kitchen, they shared the bathroom, you know, they had heating that was like a paraffin lamp. So, you know, things were really, really tough in the cold climate that they weren't really used to. So by that time, we managed to get a place and then we started subletting our rooms in Brixton Hill at the house that we had that my parents managed to buy in the later 60s. And then um, then it was time for me to go to school. Now, the first time I really realised I was black was um, we applied for a local school, which was a church school because we were churchgoers and um, as soon as I walked through the gate, a head teacher took a look at me. And he said, I'm sorry, there's no spaces here. Wow. And I remember me and my mum, my mum was holding my hand and my mother, um, the two of us turning away from that school. And then eventually I found a school, well, she found a school, a community school, which didn't have school uniform, unlike the other church school that we initially first tried to get. And um, so I got into that one and that was really heavily populated with a lot of black children, a lot of the descendant children of the Windrush. And um, so even at that point, you could tell that we were all being grouped together um, in the same fashion and they were making selections for the other schools that they um, didn't want us to really go to. And um, one of the highlights I remember is when a friend of mine, and to be honest, I don't think he actually deliberately did this. It was an accident, but because he was very kind of hyperactive, it was a wet play time, lunchtime, should I say, and we were all inside having, um, you know, activities and games. And somehow he managed to bounce all of the black powdered paint into my hair. And as black people, mm -hmm. <laughs> the hair is something really, really important. And the last thing you need is black paint thrown in a girl's hair. And uh, all I'm thinking about, my mom's going to go mad. How did you let this happen? Oh, you met them true paint in your hair. <laughs> anyway, um, the whole thing, the whole thing was taken to the head teacher's office and um, had to go along to the office to Mr. Myerson's office. And um, I went to Brockwell Primary School in South London in Lambeth. And um, the head teacher looked at me and it, it's funny because the way he looked at me, he looked at me as if I was the one that committed the crime. Nevertheless, he asked me for my parents' number, the home number, and I recited the number and I gave it to him. And I knew my mum was out shopping. It was a Thursday and that's the day she did her weekly shop. And it was pouring with rain outside, as hence I said, it was a wet play. So we were inside, we weren't in the playground and it was pouring. And the phone, I could hear the phone 
ringing and ringing and ringing as he was calling my mum. There was no answer. And it went on for well over a minute of the phone ringing and ringing. And then he just put the phone down back on the, the receiver and he turned around in his swivel chair and he said to me, well, I've spoken to mum and I've told her what has happened today. And she said, she'll see you when you get home. And I was like, what? He didn't speak to anyone. And I looked at him and I thought, you liar. Right. You're lying in my face. And this was the type of patronizing behavior that the authority that he had as a head teacher, you know, in hindsight, me looking back now as an adult, he had the cheek and he had, you know, the audacity to tell me he had spoken to my mum and she'll see me later. And I had to turn around from, he says, now you go back to class, like run along. And I had to go back to class with this brown powder, black powder in my hair, upset. One, that I've got the powder in my hair. Two, what my mum's going to say. And three, that the head teacher, the leader of the school, patronised me and lied. Mm. A few more hours had gone that afternoon, had to go home. As I said, it was raining and I did put my hat on, went home and I said, mum, did Mr. Myerson call you today? No. I said, Mr. Myerson said he spoke to you. My mum said, no one called her today. She said she was in Brixton. I said, I know, because I know that's the day she does her shopping and gets my lovely favorite apple pie and when I began to explain my mom was so upset she was so upset why mom had to go to work that evening but before going to work she had to wash all of this black paint out of my hair Mm. before going to work So you could well imagine how under pressure she was. And to hear the head teacher said he had called her to tell her, to inform her what had happened. And it was not the case at all. So sometimes, you know, you have to think, even then as parents, you know, the the, the older generation, so many of them have passed now. that they were leaving their children with people who didn't care about them, who didn't have their best interests at heart. And that could never have been easy. And um, so when you think about the emotional impact all around, um, even at the time with my dad going to work and having all the racial remarks and it wasn't easy. And to try and overcome that, and come home and home is home is your safe haven isn't it home is the place where you can express yourself or you're supposed to be able to and so I think a lot of the challenges back then is that um, 
people did express themselves indoors and people in front of the front door were not aware of what was being expressed behind mm. closed doors because they needed some outlet or something of some kind and um yeah so even when I think about the type of legacy traumas um from one generation to the next these are some of the things that kind of flash back to me unresolved matters and unresolved issues and um to think how in pain and damaged a lot of our generation is now community wise there's a lot of work to be done and I do believe it's because of generational traumas and unfinished business did your mom like explain to you what she think had happened or why that whole situation arose or was it just kind of something that was kind of stepped under the rod so you knew it was there but you couldn't articulate do, it do yet. you mean I think as well being a child as well I think there was kind of so much I think they would share my dad was more the person that would talk about racism at home my dad was um, my dad became quite an activist I'd have to say my dad was part of a a, a black power movement um, you know, 1981, when there was the New Cross fire that had killed 13 young people by a fire in a party. Um, I remember there being a community meeting and my dad being involved in that. And uh, my dad making a suggestion at that meeting that we need to have a day of action. And a family friend of ours was there, Linton Quasi Johnson, and he was chairing the meeting. My memory serves me right at the time. And um, that was the first really, really large demonstration of mine. I grew up, my mum was more the kind of nurturer and homemaker. Dad would be very much the one that would take a stand against things that, you know, were wrong in that sense, in terms of racial um, crimes and things like that he would respond so I grew up very much around that type of lifestyle um, so he would explain um, mom may just say okay just leave it for a peaceful life but um, dad on the other hand he wasn't like that I guess it was was it nice to you to have the two differences so you have someone who's stood there and be like yeah I'm gonna I'm going to fight for the rights and then also another part that's like okay like this has happened let me deal with it and then just leave it don't have to fight every day is it nice having that two duality I, I think in hindsight now I can appreciate the two whereas I think when I was younger I saw them as two extremes um mom was the homemaker she baked cakes she baked buns people bought her buns um dad was as I said he was the one that was more the the grafter in that sense although mum went out to work as well um she did domestic cleaning as well she worked in the hospitals um but she made sure she utilized her gifts so she did bake she sold the cakes she sold her buns she sold clothes she sold all our clothes so we had that she sold the curtains in the house, the cushions that we sat back on, you know, she did all of that soft furnishing. She did all of that. So she utilized the gifts 
and she passed them on to her girls. Um, Dad, on the other hand, as I said, he was the more radical, you know, introducing us to demonstrations, public meetings. I used to go to public meetings from when I was a little girl, you know, um, to, dis to discuss the, the, the ways that we can fix things, you know, and that's when I could really see the difference between the racial element and the oppression of what we were under. Um, because my dad made that quite evident. He didn't push that under the carpet at all. He made us have a voice. So we appreciate that. Yeah. What were those meetings like? Because I'm kind of intrigued. We had a lot of Black Power movements, um, Black Panther movements, parties. My brother-in-law was a Black Panther. Um, and so I was used to go into these type of meetings. My brother-in-law was also a photographer. Um, his name's Neil Kenlock. Um, later on, he, um, I think this was in 79, he launched, uh, he and a partner friend of his, Patrick Berry, they launched the first glossy magazine, Root Magazine at the time. Um, beautiful black magazine. Um, there was a hair salon called Root as well, which was part of theirs. And then eventually they went on to launching the first black legal registration, which was choice of off. He started off as a freelance photographer working for a newspaper called the West Indian World. And so he would be taking the photographs of all these demonstrations. So I kind of like had the best of both worlds. So um, he and my sister were together from I was five. So this is all from very early in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Very early in my life. And um, so, as I said, it was around me. It was definitely in our midst for us to see the wrongs and the rights and um, actively doing things about it. And I think that was what I was in the midst of. I was around people that were doers not just saying it, but actually making a difference. And, and that's the beauty of it. So the meetings were very heated. Um, I remember seeing different colors, um, posters, Angela Davis. I remember seeing the Afros of Angela Davis, you know, in photographs and um, posters. I remember growing up and seeing the Malcolm X book on the bookshelf. I didn't understand it. I remember trying to read it when I was much younger, the Malcolm X book, but these are the things that my dad had read. Um, we grew up, I grew up around listening to Bob Marley music. I remember when I was um, doing my art exam, Bob Marley featured as one of my pieces actually on my dad's album, um, was it Live Living? Living Up Yourself. Yeah, that was one of the um, album covers I remember copying for my artwork in my art exam later on. Yeah, so I was around all of that. Curtis Mayfield, all this type of revolutionary, Bonnie Whaler. Yes, um, I was around a lot of conscious movement to try and relieve people of, black people of oppression. Yeah, that was very much in the midst in my growing up years. And it was good because subconsciously you didn't even realize what it was doing to you. 
Um, and I think the foundation for children is, is key. And, you know, there's, as an educator myself, there's always the element of the former years are essential. Whatever the child gets before seven stays. And so it is important. And so even when I think about what I had received and what I was around, influenced by, yeah, let's say influenced by, it was a lot of activism, you know. So although I had the nurturing side, I was a female, I'm a female. I had that side to build the home, you know, I baked cakes, ended up teaching it later on in life in the cake decorating class in the college, the local college. So I had that side from my mum, but I also had the other side as well of the activism part and knowing who we are as a people. And that is very important. Yeah. Did that make you start past the best and raise the next generation? What made me really start past the bat and raise the next generation? Funny enough, you should say that, but about 20 years ago, when my children were much younger, I used to buy them literature, uh, you know, children's magazines and all different things to try and stimulate them. And um, I just thought at that point, there's something missing here. Um, they're not being, they're not being represented in what I'm buying. So I'd look at it and I'm thinking, there was one girl in the magazine of Noddy, a black girl called Dinah. She was a doll. And Dinah had a brick and brack stall. So she sold odd bods and lots of different things on her brick and brack stall, old bits, you know, like a car boot sale kind of thing. But she'd feature every so often. She wasn't in each edition or, you know, every episode of the mag. She just came and she popped up every so often. And I just thought, well, this is the only representation in this magazine. And I thought, and it just hit me, do a children's magazine. Now, at the time, I had no experience in business. I had no, no background in education. It was all new. I just had an idea and I just had a vision. And I literally began to think about it. And it's like I emerged Dinah into a little character and the character I called Kamara. And Kamara essentially is meant to be a little girl that travels all over the world and brings information back to this magazine, whether it's mathematical, whether it's historical, geographical, whatever. That was what her job was. And the centerfold of the magazine was meant to be the ideas of the readers and on the back was meant to be an information page for parents. So I kind of pondered on this. And as I said, I tried, I did some um, questionnaires. I'd take it out to various different events to see what people thought and what people would like. But as I said, I had no knowledge myself. I just had a vision. And I mean, I'd even have um, qualified teachers trying to intimidate me. Are you a teacher? And I said, no, I'm not. And they'd look at me like, what are you doing? And, you know, again, not because you're not qualified per se to do something doesn't mean you don't have a vision. And, you know, that's one of the things in my work. I want all the young people to know you've got something to offer. There's something there. 
you know, I know that there's a scripture in the Bible where God says to Abraham, I will give you as far as your eyes can see. Now, what is it that you see? What is it that I can see? So although somebody who could be a qualified teacher at the time had said to me, but are you a qualified teacher? And I said, well, no. And they looked at me like, you haven't got the skills to do this. And as I said, it was 20 years. And I did kind of think, feel a little intimidated by it, to be honest, but I knew that this thing was still sitting in me. And um, as the years had gone on, I did take a route into education. And um, then even with business, I started going to various different courses and what have you. And I remember, you know, when I became a children's centre professional and there was a lot of cuts being made and um, the local authorities decided to restructure and say like 30 managers of us in the borough being cut to 13. So at the time, I remember walking through the centre and it's literally, I saw like this light bulb had come on in me. As I was walking in my own children's centre, I saw like a array of books on a desk and it was literally like a, a vision this is your market this is where you reach the people so by this time I had a lot more understanding about families a lot more understanding about the community I began to work in the cohesion side of things of how to bring everything and tie everything in together and um, this is when I realized Kamara it's unfinished business and it's literally like based on the framework of every child matters it's literally like I saw these books and I saw one two three four five and it's literally like I saw um like uh, every child matters but it was all to do with Kamara like one would emphasize on children's health that's the outcomes of every child matters one would emphasize on children's safety one would emphasize on children you know, making a positive contribution, i.e. charity. One would emphasize on their education, how they enjoy and achieve. And the fifth one would emphasize on their financial security. Every child having economic well-being. And this is what I saw. So literally, I, I remember, you know, when that job kind of folded down and I started to write all these different things and I'm breaking up all the segments of these Every Child Matters you know, the concept of the, the enjoying and achievement with languages, you know, with the safety, how children, families should save, all of that. I began to just break everything into these separate pieces. And then things got financially tough. So I went back out to work again. And then once you kind of get back into the routine of work, you kind of like leave your dream. But it's really funny. But last year, um, when the lockdown hit, um, and just before the lockdown hit, I made a commitment to sponsor this little girl in the Gambia, Aminata Giroux. And as I thought about it in the lockdown, I thought, well, what could I really do to really make an added difference to her? And with that, I found myself drafting her a story, just a little adventure. But in the story, she's planting a tree. Now, essentially what happens later on, although I did that, say the earlier part of last year, by August, the other strand of the vision that I had before tied in with it. And I asked my illustrator to then do me an additional page. And this is where she takes the oranges to school, shares it with her friends, 
and the teacher then separates the segments of the orange into seven pieces and this is where he names the segments one by one children's health children's safety children having charity children's education children's financial security i, I did another one another two children understanding and looking after their environment and children becoming spiritually aware so this was now where i'm able to address what I saw that day in my vision through my lovely little girl Aminata's orange segments. So this is another part of the work that I'm doing now for parents, for practitioners to really address those areas because the teacher then says on the back page in that book, when all these areas are in a child's life, it makes them whole just like an orange. So this is where we are and that's the message that will be then taken back. So pass the baton, raise the next generation. It, it really kind of emerged out of the redundancy of my professional role in the children's centres by me using all that I've learned to bring that to families in local communities, those that have felt disadvantaged, knowing that, you know, they needed empowering and essentially to put purpose back into the hands and the minds of the next generation. And that's how Pastor Baton really came around. Well, well done for sticking onto your dream and not letting it go because you could have Absolutely. easily just found another job to get that yeah. security, but you took yeah. that leap to Absolutely. dream. So well done for that because not a lot of people have that courage. Thank you. I think it's because I'm getting older and I think, well, if I'm not going to do it now, it's never going to happen. So you just got to push, you know, and you just got to push. And, and, and really, that's that's my advice to anyone. Get the dream out there. There's a reason why it's there. Get the dream out there. It's going to help someone, help us, help the community, help the, help society and even help the world. Who would have thought that I'd have been sponsoring a little girl? you know, in the other side of the world and then linking it to addressing education, health, you know, as a humanitarian project. So it's even bigger than I even thought. And as the years have developed, I've gained more experience. I've gained more knowledge. Therefore, my skill set has expanded. So I'm now able to use that and address the issues and the gaps that I see in filling. So, I, you know, I'd say use everything we've got, every crumb. As Jesus said when he fed the 5,000, use every crumb. <laughs> Don't leave anything. Every crumb. And we'll feed the people. So that's what we're doing. That's what I'm doing. What is your definition of black excellence? Black excellence, I have to say, take it to the top if you believe in what you see take it to the top if you see a vision start it in your home once it works in your home take it to your local community once you start moving it in your local community Take it London-wide or borough-wide or wherever it is. Move beyond the borders. 
take it national wide. After national wide, take it global wide. Take it to the top. Your vision deserves to be seen by all, not hidden by all. Yeah, I, I get that. It's like when you have a dream or idea, just um, just do it. And obviously society for us don't does not encourage that at all. Like we're told to do the opposite, do what we're told, do what, you know, is better for everybody in the long run. But however, that's not really what's true because you know what's best for you because you have that dream, you, know, you have that vision. So, you know, and, just, and, you know, and what I've experienced as well, as you said, we're not taught that because I think how society has taught us for generations is to follow a script. Following a script is fine, but it's time for us to write a script. Yes. And so once you take that leap and you start documenting and creating a script, take the script where it needs to go because there are so many gaps. And if we all are following the same script, it's like follow the leader, follow the leader, follow the leader. There's still things that need to be addressed. And there's still gaps. And because there are gaps, it's because people like myself and people like you, we haven't filled these gaps. And we're the ones to fill the gaps. So let's start filling the gaps and making society whole, just like an orange. <laughs> <laughs> just like an orange. Yes. Because each segment is important. It's essential. So the part that I play is essential. And if I don't play it, there'll be the need. And so, you know, there is that there is that element. If we don't do it, who will? If we don't go, who will? And if you don't go, you'll never know what could happen. So all you can do is go. All you can do is do and see what will happen. There's a reason why you've seen the vision. So do what you see and I have to say Coco has become the first black children's magazine Coco came 20 years after I saw Kamara had I done it in the 20 years so it's like look how long the grace was for me to do this work before it went into somebody else's mind or hand. Mm. Two decades. Two decades. So could you think of what could have happened in two decades had I done it then? And no matter what, if someone says to you, are you a teacher? Are you with this? Are you with that? Do what you see. It may not have had the quality 20 years ago, like what it could have today, but it would have been a stepping stone and it would have been a start. Yeah. So at the end of the day, just do what you see. And on the flip side too, it's like, even if you feel like it's too late now, it's not too late. It's not too late. Not too like late. You... It's never too late. Never too late. I, I was watching um, something with like all the, 
Hollywood greats that started like in their 50s. And like people like Samuel L. Jackson, I think he started like 52 or something before anyone even saw him on a screen. Look at Samuel L. Jackson now. You know, there's, he's not the only one, but there's lots of them that came late. You know, you might think, oh, you've entered the stage a lot later in the, the production, but it's the part you play. Yeah. It's the part you play that is gonna make that difference. It's the part you play. And even if that character comes later on, on that stage, what is the impact? What is the influence? What do you remember about that character? You may remember the later character than the much earlier character, based on the timing. It's never too late. We just got to do. So for me, it is about passing that baton, passing that baton of knowledge, passing that baton of experience to the next generation because so many haven't. And the next generation are waiting and they got their hand out to receive it. Yeah. And they want it. And so for me, it's about passing that baton, that baton of information, that scroll of information. Because once you open a scroll, what's in there is so powerful. And that is to take to another generation. Yeah. So you got to pass it. Every single leg of the relay is important. The one that starts, the second leg, you may see a transition between the second and the third, and the fourth one is the one that gets across that line. So in that fourth generation, where will we be? Where will we be? So we've got to make sure we're passing the baton and we're passing it and we don't drop it because if we drop it, we're disqualified and we don't want to be disqualified because then that last generation, that last leg will be affected severely and we don't want to hear DNF. What is DNF? Did not finish. We don't want to hear that. And I think this is my message to parents. It's uh, funny because my last question to every guest is like, what's the three things you pass to the next generation but that's what you do anyway so if you could think yeah. of one message that's mm. most important to you what would that be that you want to teach the next generation check your daily routines your daily routines is what becomes a habit your daily routines is what becomes practice your daily routines is what becomes permanent so for me, check the routines. If a child is always on the street, check that routine, break that cycle. Or saying that road life is no life. Road life is no life. You know, we've had people around us that have died to knife crime gun crime and um, it still hurts it still hurts and for me the road life 
mentality is like a Russian roulette. There is a bullet in the barrel. You just don't know where. And for me, it's, it's too much of a high risk to maintain the life on the road. And I think parents need to really recognize that road life is no life. It doesn't lead to the right outcomes. And it's really the parental engagement is essential. What do you see for your child? What do you see for your grandchildren? What is it that you see for a family? Let's work at it. Don't get me wrong. We've all made mistakes. None of us are perfect. And this is why those who have gone ahead have to help those behind and let them know where to walk and where not to walk. Because you really need to know that what you're passing on is going to avoid a lot of things and a lot of time. And we haven't got much time. So <laughs> we need to start recognized in the time that we have and in fact I would say time is currency let's spend it wisely and if we did actually see time as currency we may think quite differently yeah I've never thought of it in that way before but you're completely right it gives what obviously a child sees and how people live their lives on a day-to-day basis obviously dictates the rest of their life and how far they'll go. Mm. So it's, they haven't put that work in to just make sure they do something great every day. That's not, greatness isn't going to come for them. Absolutely. And it's also the engagement as well. It's, it's the parental engagement is so key. You know, even in Aminata's adventure, Aminata in the Bag of Seeds, You know, I just love the way the illustrator created the photograph of the two of them planting the seeds in the ground. Mom has just got such a caring way about her helping seeds of her gift, because that's what Aminata does. She finds her gift. And then she she sees that they're seeds when she finds them, but her mom identified exactly what type of seeds they are. And then they set to task together. And they create something so beautiful, ever so beautiful. So if anyone wants a book, please, (laughs) the website is passingthebaton.co.uk. That's passingthebaton.co.uk. And um, it's such a lovely story, nurturing story, plus it's inspiring for children. Finding your gift, overcoming rejection, finding your gift, and then seeing what happens when you practice something every day she waters those seeds every day because she remembers hearing her mum's words everything not some everything that is born to grow must be fed and then the teacher brings another side to it by separating the segments and listing them that make a child whole so it's about getting the message across to those who need it. So if you have any children, nieces, nephews, cousins that are around that age and you need to buy this book, I know I'm definitely going to buy a copy for my nieces and nephews because they need to see that. And mm. I have been looking around for books and education stuff for them, but there's nothing that's as complete as that. So you've definitely got yourself a sale here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
Sandra, thank you so much for joining us this episode. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much, Hannah. It's been a, it's been a pleasure, absolute pleasure. And I hope that, you know, it's been helpful just to share a bit of the story in my journey um, with others. Yeah, in order to make that added difference. <laughs>